What's up, punks? I'm Scott from the band Glue Ear, and you're listening to the Punks in Pubs podcast. I'm interrupting the start of this podcast because I want to tell you about my band's new song, Santa the Cat Burglar. It's a Christmas single. It's out now. You can get it wherever you buy your music from. You can get it from our band camp. You can get it from hornhoofrecords.co.uk. And you can listen to it on any streaming services you got. Spotify, Apple, Deezer, Napster, YouTube. And you can find Glue Ear on all the social medias. Facebook slash Glue Ear Punks. Twitter, Glue Ear Punks. Yes, that's punks with an X, not an S, because we're fucking cool. Anyway, that's enough of me talking for now. I hope you enjoy this song. Check it out. Drop us a like and go and buy it. Make it this year's Christmas number one. It was the night before Christmas and all three of a house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Except for some bastard up on the roof. Santa's a thief. And here's the fucking proof. He's got big black boots that come up to his thighs and a big brushy beard that is his disguise. Sunday burglary, what a one. And nicked all the tools to get the job done. He has this way of getting out to your roof. So breaking out and entering, there is no proof. He slid down your chimney and drink all your wine. He's a wiry bastard, who's the who's behind? This is the Punks and Pubs podcast and it is the last one of this year, 2021. It can fuck right off. Just a clone of 2022, wasn't it? Just sprinkled a little bit of glitter. Complete bullshit. Fucking Omicron. Fucking sounds like a transformer. It can transform out of my fucking life. This is the Christmas special, by the way. <laughs> I just realised I just started with a fucking nah, 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 nah. Uh, it's not great, is it? Uh, at least the early signs of it shows that it's less deadly. Uh, we've got to be thankful for that. But uh, yeah, get your fucking vaccine because you're holding up the fucking queue uh, for us to get back to some form of normality. Again, this this is the Christmas podcast. This is actually a punk podcast as well. This isn't just me bitching <laughs> about people to get vaccinated. This is a very, a very weird way to start this Christmas uh, special. I tell you what, though, I, I was talking to a friend uh, the other day, and 
I said to him that this is what I said. I was like, oh, the early signs of the vaccine as a virus is less deadly. And if someone said to me that I would be saying those words out loud, I just presume my B-movie script had been picked up. And I'm reading lines with Nicolas Cage because it's fucking crazy. The whole... It's gone crazy. It's gone crazy. It's, it's, uh, it's a new year soon. So let's be positive, people. Ah, oh, mate. What am I doing with the start of this episode? This is a Christmas episode. Let's be happy. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Who doesn't like Christmas? Unless you're, you're, you're not Christian or, or don't give a fuck about religion or don't like Christmas, then I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fucking hell, guys. It's been a long year, hasn't it? Uh, let's, let's get back on track. Let's get back on track. My guest for this Christmas episode. I feel like I've actually done quite well with this one. It is the Pogue's own Spider Stacy. So in this episode, we of course talk about the formation of the band and the legacy it still creates. Uh, But it's Christmas, so we of course talk about the greatest Christmas song of our generation, The Fairy Tale of New York. And I also speak to Spider about his own Christmas time. Uh, Me and Spider were meant to do this episode in person, but sadly I got sick. I had bought him gifts uh, that are now just stuck in my cupboards. So unfortunately, we didn't really get the opportunity to uh, open gifts together and really delve into Christmas. But it is what it is. Uh, So we did it over Zoom. I was full of flu and cold, so I'll admit I could have done better with this chat. I'm not saying it's terrible. It's just that I wasn't keeping an eye on time. So there were a lot of things that we didn't cover uh, and probably things that I probably wanted to pick up as follow-ups. But like it's not a shit interview it's actually quite a good interview because we talk about other things apart from christmas uh we talk about spider's instant love for punk rock and how the genre completely shaped himself and the pogues in the work that they did moving forward that's enough of me to try and put you off listening to this podcast ever again because let's face it i've not done well with this intro Uh, (laughs) i'll be back with some thank yous at the end of the podcast but until then enjoy this Christmas magical episode of Punks and Pubs with myself and Spider Stacy of the Pugs. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, Won't see another one. And then I sang a song. I turn my face away and dreamed about you. God, I'm the lucky one. Came in late into one. I've got a feeling this year's from me and you. So happy Christmas. Spider, how are you? I hope you're well. Thank you for doing this via Zoom. I know we were meant to do it in person, but I'm sick 
and I didn't want to kill you with my cold. I, I appreciate the sentiment, Liam. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good, actually. I'm doing good. So we're coming up to like the Christmas time. I mean, is this a, a period you enjoy or is it something that you just see as another day? No, I mean, I like this time of year. Um, there's uh, the run up to Christmas, so particularly in London. There's certain places where it, where it seems to be really nice, like London, New York. It, it just, it's, it's a nice time of year, I think, generally, though. You know, I mean, like, even with all this shit that's going on at the moment, it, people sort of seem to be, you know, it's something that people look forward to. There's a generally a sort of fairly sort of, um, you know, there's a generally a pretty good sort of relaxed, relaxed, is that the right word? A good sort of vibe going around and everything. And yeah, so uh, it doesn't sort of hold any sort of like deep significance to me beyond that. But yeah. um it's a time of year that, you know, everybody seems to look forward to it. Kids obviously look forward to it, you know, and it's, it's yeah. Have you ever braved the Winter Wonderland in Hyde Park? No, no, never oh, have. Fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> Is anyone who talks about like London at Christmas time and stuff like that, it seems to be that everyone, oh, you, should, you need to go to Winter Wonderland. No, you don't. No, you I really mean, don't. I I know I don't, you know, I mean, like, you just need to walk around and just kind yeah. of, like, soak it up. Well, one of my favourite places is the Natural History Museum, where they've got, like, the ice skating rink, and it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful building, but also it's, like, a nice area, a Christmassy kind of area. Yeah, that sounds like it could be really nice. With Christmas, um, you spend your time between London and New Orleans, and I've been fortunate enough to go to New Orleans during Christmassy times, and it's... Uh, it's a bit different. Um, obviously, climate is 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 uh, is different, but also I feel like they kind of go a bit more balls out with Christmas. Oh, they they go more balls out and everything really in in New Orleans. Um, it's it's another city actually where Christmas is you know the run up to Christmas is fun. They um they they take their their celebrations very seriously and um and they they imbue them with great sort of enthusiasm and vigor. You'll you'll see this if you go there at other times of year when there is a a reason to celebrate something. I mean, like Mardi Gras being the obvious one, but it's a kind of thing really at any time. Was it? Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good excuse for a party. So that's. Uh... I mean, when I was there, it just seemed to be it was a Tuesday, so therefore let's go out and have a and have a drink. It Absolutely, is, it's, yeah, it's a crazy. Ten starts here. <laughs> <laughs> what about when you were a kid? Like, was Christmas a time where you were excited about? Um, was it celebrated massively in your house? No, I mean, like, I don't think, uh, not not sort of to, to any degree of excess. I mean, it was it was celebrated. It was, like I said before, you know, I think kids generally do look forward to Christmas unless they're in sort of like, well, you know, hopefully most of them should do. I know not everybody's in a position where that's uh, that's a reality, but yeah, it was a, it was. A, I always I always enjoyed it. And and it's your birthday soon, if if, if I'm correct. My birthday on the, uh, tomorrow, actually. Yeah. So happy birthday for tomorrow. That's just a creepy, stalky bit for me. Um, no, but it's I, also my wife's birthday on the on the eighteenth. So oh that's, really? Uh, yeah. How does that play in with Christmas then? Because I always felt sorry for kids whose whose birthday were close to Christmas because you you kind of are you getting more presents than you would have? No, you have to put your foot down and make sure that you do. <laughs> you know, um, I, I know that uh, Shane, who's actually born on Christmas Day, I think he had sort of like you know that was one of his kind of bugbears about that. How many presents do you expect you're going to? Do you think you're going to get? You know. So, <laughs> You need double Christmas presents. A double presents. Yeah, yeah, Christmas. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's only fair. And I also understand you moved around a bit, uh, living in uh, Guyana in South America and Libya in North Africa. Did they know it was Christmas? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely certain that they did. But I mean, Guyana, I was far too little to have any sort of real sort of like understanding of Christmas. I didn't know it was Christmas. But I'm sure a lot of um, Guyanan people knew it was Christmas. There's some tribes of, of Amerindian people in Guyana, I think, that have, barely 
been um, contacted by the outside world. There are probably people there then who had no contact or had had up to that point no contact with the outside world. And so uh, presumably they didn't have a clue it was Christmas. So I, I obviously asked that as a bit of a, 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 a jokey uh, bomb yeah, I mean, like, kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know why but, I started going, oh, well, actually. <laughs> no, but I mean, I am interested though, because cause you did travel a bit when you were younger. Why did you travel? Was it army? Like most people will think mm-hmm. travel with, with military, but I mean, for yourself. No, no, no. My dad... Um, it was one of those things, um, he, he came from South London, to quite a sort of poor background in South London. And when he joined the, when he joined the army at the start of the war, he, um, he joined the, you know, the, the, the rate, he was in the TA and he, he sort of, he, uh, he joined up he was, rather than waiting to be, you know, to be called up. And um, he made sergeant quite quickly. And the Indian army, um, which was that time, at that time, sort of mainly off, most of the officers were, were, were British and they they needed more officers, so they um, they put out a call for people like like my dad, I guess, really. And so he ended he went over to India, and he ended up in the Indian Army, uh, in the Sikh Regiment. And I think that kind of I think for one thing, after the war, there are a lot of people, a lot of men, if they'd been officers, um, found themselves in these kind of like weird, sort of out of the way, odd sort of jobs that had. That were just kind of like you know, sort of to do with the sort of like not that actually anything to do with the, with the, with the with the empire or anything like that, and like running it, but just like he was working, he got a job in in what was then British Guyana, basically on a sort of sugar plantation, where his job was effectively to sort of hire and fire the sort of seasonal um, workers who are all um, indentured labourers um, from like India, South Asia. It sounds like it was a pretty horrible job, you know, because like he was, he was having to lay people off and that sort of thing, you know, didn't actually make himself very popular. I think what actually happened was that there was a, the place where he was, where, this is before he we went out there, he was like living in this kind of township sort of thing that was like um, attached to the plant, plantation, a township shanty. I don't quite know what you call it, shanty town, whatever. And um, there was a big fire. The rum shop nearly, nearly went up and he sort of like, he he sort of like alerted the local sort of volunteer fire brigade and and so it became sort of something of a they kind of like well I don't know why I'm telling you all this. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's interesting. Yeah, sort of like he went from being this kind of like rather sort of like oh god here he comes again who's he going to sack you know who's he laying off today to those oh there's a guy who saved the rum shop. Um, have you had Take any any want to kind of go back and kind of maybe look in like follow his shoes and go to India and go to Guyana and and and, and I'd love to go to India. India. Um, um, Libya, I would, um, Libya, I would love to, I mean, I'd love to go back to Guyana as well, but as I say, I really don't remember anything about it, but Libya, I remember, I have like very vivid snapshots, more than sort of like snapshots, like, like little films Mm. in my head of, of, of Libya. And that's somewhere I really would like to go back to if if, if the sort of rest of the world could leave it alone and give it a chance just to sort of, you know. Because I, I had a, I loved Libya. Mm. I, I really, really liked it there. Yeah. So you predominantly grew up though in North London, is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, North London's now changed beyond recognition. See, this family connection is great because you know all this already. I know. <laughs> this is this is called research. This this is. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So so yeah. So you grew up in North London, and obviously it's it's changed beyond recognition from from what it used to be. I mean, even from me being. 18 and going to king's cross it is it's just a different place now. yeah um what what are your memories of growing up in north london especially I mean, we, especially I grew up, sorry. I grew up in temple fortune um sort of on finchley road on the way up 
you know, between Golders Green and Finchley. And in all honesty, actually, that hasn't really changed a great deal um, from, from when I was growing up. Then there's things like, you know, there was a big Odeon cinema, which is no longer there. There wasn't a Marks and Spencer's, but there is one. There's kind of stuff like that. The pub has gone. Maybe that's probably the most significant thing. We grew up next to, uh, next to and on top of, basically, a pub. Uh, my dad worked for our libraries, so the flat, so we got a flat. Pub is like part of this sort of bigger building, and we had a we, we had a flat there. And um, but really, other than sort of like those kind of like, which are essentially cosmetic changes, so you might say that losing a pub is possibly a little bit more than just cosmetic. But given the kind of um, area that it was, it was very sort of like middle class and sort of res- residential. Ah, no, 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 there was a there was a kind of pub that actually attracted people from quite a large area around because it was it was a big pub. But no, yeah, apart from that going, it's it's not really that different. Let's like going back, you know, when I sort of go back there. Now we rode our bikes down there the other day, which is the first time I've been back, sort of, and any sort of like really sort of looked at it since since my dad died in two thousand and twelve, mm. and it hasn't really changed that much. You know. That's kind of nice to hear because I think a lot of people who grow up in London now say like it's unrecognisable. It is just not the same place that it well, used to be. It is what you make it. And I'm, I know that that's for a, a lot of people feel that, oh, yeah, no, it's changed. And, I mean, in, a lot of places have changed beyond all recognition. You're just talking about King's Cross. And of course, that's utterly different. You know, I, um, when the band started, we were all living around King's Cross in squats and in Bloomsbury and then sort of like, um, I was going to say sheltered housing, that's sheltered housing, and short-let accommodation in, um, you know, in Whitbourne buildings, which is just on the other side of Euston Road from, from St Pancras Station. That's very different around there now. London's always going to be changing, I think. I think it's... it's whoops. Sorry. <laughs> hey! Phone's gone. Uh, you, you can sort of de- decry these things, and and like I think there was a time when the when, you know when Canary Wharf was going up and all that kind of thing, and there's all these like really sort of soulless new districts appearing that had no sort of like you know sort of the idea was that people were going to be living in living in the sky and there was nothing actually on the ground or living more to the point working these huge great developments that bore no sort of relation to anything that was like a, a happening at street level and which and there really wasn't anything happening at street level when the um our first album um, red roses for me was recorded at elephant studios in, in wapping which is like right sort of pretty much close to ground zero for the, all that sort of thing and even though like when we were sort of recording that the docks were kind of like very much sort of on their way out um there was still a sort of recognizable you know, the a recognisable community around there. And that that obviously, I think, kind of was left behind when all that sort of massive development happened a few years later. But I think there's also been a kind of a recognition in, in I know it's difficult to know sort of who's recognised it, but there's definitely a sort of more, you know, you go to East London nowadays and we, it's a lot of like, again, a lot of little communities kind of forming up or larger communities even, it's, uh, I've got a lot of time for it, really. You say you grew up a, a, um, above a pub. Is, is that where about your, your love of smashing beer trays across your, on top of your head kind of came about? Shane, Shane assured me that that was a, a traditional Irish instrument. And that's just a, <laughs> just a lie. He just wanted to see me hitting myself across the head with a beer tray. Um, no, there was nothing like that going on in the Royal Oak. Well, there were things like that going on in the Royal Oak, but they weren't sort of quite a sort of such a musical uh, nature. There might have been people smashing their trays across other people's heads for a, a less harmonious, less harmonious reasons. Size my 
Where was your love for music coming from? Was it from within the house? Was music being played all the time? Or was it from outside, like, school or, or just people that you knew as friends? Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, I had um, an older sister and an older brother, um, and, and my sister in particular, who sort of, like, was with us for, you know, was living in the house at the same time. For John, had, my brother, had moved out sort of, like, at a much earlier... He didn't actually come to Libya with us. Um, so he was already kind of, at that point... Um, you know, living on his own or, you know, in, in shared places with, with, with people. Hazel, my sister had like, you know, she, um, had, she had this huge sort of collection of records and, um, it's just sort of something that you pick up though anyway. It's more, I, I think it's more really having a sort of, uh, having a big sister. When, when, uh, my sister and her, and her husband, when they left London, they moved to, they moved to America. Um, they gave me basically all these records that they had. My, uh, my brother-in-law is, um, uh, is American. And so he had all these really cool, like, um, U.S. labels of, like, you know, of all sorts of things, U.S. copies, uh, things like the MC5 as well, and, and uh, the quite sort of, like, um, I was trying to think who else. Um, I mean, there's always kind of loads of sort of Beatles and Stones and, and, and The Who and sort of stuff like that, but there was more sort of um, people like, yeah, like the MC5, like Laura Nairo, um, people like sort of Judy Sell, um Stuff that you might not, you might not, have, I might not have come across mm. left to my own devices. You know, a huge wedge of records. Wedge? What? I don't know what I'm talking about. Getting music start with money. So you got all these records then, and and at what point did you realise this has gone from? I'm enjoying this to actually, this is a passion. This is... I meant to sort of elaborate a bit on that. Sorry, I mean, like, you've got all this stuff at home, but then you, I think what's possibly more important is um, you've got the stuff that you listen to anyway, the stuff that you sort of see, you know, like Top of the Pops or the radio, and friends at school, friends' music collections, other friends' older brothers and sisters' music collections. But it's you and your mates, really, and what you're listening to together, I think, that really creates that sort of spark. And I think it's that that sort of um, ultimately sort of led to us, quite a lot of us forming bands or, you know, forming, yeah. Um, because it was like a sort of a continued sort of thread of like listening to stuff and there's new stuff coming on. I mean, when when punk happened, we were all getting to an age where this, where, where this was like more than necessarily something you'd just be could just listening to. When punk happened, it was, you, you got the idea into your head, well, this is not only, you know, this is something that we can actually do ourselves. There's this kind of myth, I think, that or there was kind of at the time, oh, none of these bands can actually play. That's fucking cool, you know. I mean, that's actually not true because, of course, they all could play. That sort of first wave of bands like, you know, the Pistols and, 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 the, and the Clash or whatever, of course they could play their instruments. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been in bands that were getting gigs if you could, you know what I mean? It does, what, it, what it did was it went, well, okay, well, I can't play a guitar or, 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 or drums or whatever, but there's no reason to say, that's no, doesn't mean to say I can't start do, learning how to do that now. You know, you have those great, um, the, the, the bands like the Slits and the Raincoats, the, um, the sort of girl punk bands who, like, I think really sort of took that on board. You know, just like, yeah, fuck it, we can do this, we can do this. It's not just for boys, it's not just for people who can play their instruments, it's for people who just want to sort of go out there and do something. And and not just about, you know, just sort of thrashing away, like, regardless, but actually, um, but actually, as it were, starting something really good, but starting literally from scratch from the ground up punk always kind of had that ability to to allow people to to kind of start believing of like i'm not classically trained but 
I, I think I can do what those people are doing on yeah. stage. And then from yeah. that, you, you end up being submerged into this subculture of, of what it is within punk, like as in the ideology, the DIY ethics, and you start surrounding yourself yeah, with yeah. that. At what point did that really start kind of submerging yourself from, I enjoy punk to this is it. Like I punk is like at this point in time, everything to me. Oh, it was almost immediate actually. I think for a lot of people, because there was this real sense of like you know this is a this is a sort of um, this is a changing point in history here you know this is absolutely revolutionary this is something new we're the fucking you know we're the vanguard we're the whatever you know what I mean it's um, it's like sort of cultural revolution in China you know but Louise my wife who was like um, she's seven years younger than me so she was like eleven when when punk happened and she picked up on that you know she went to see the Clash and the Stranglers when she was eleven twelve years old total sort of red guard. In her sort of in, in 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 her attitudes to sort of stuff that had gone before, it's like no, you know, um, and 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 a lot of us, a lot of people were kind of were sort of like that, just like this is this is um, this is something that we ha- that we have to do, you know. This is like well, the world is changing and blah blah blah. So, did you truly believe that? Then, did you truly believe at the time, like we, us young people? Like, this is our time. We're going to yeah. change. Because obviously punk famously fell on its ass five years, well, punk, five years later with, with Johnny Rotten on stage saying, have you ever felt cheated in LA? Like, Well, you know, that's, um, I wouldn't, I, 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 I wouldn't agree with that for a start. You know, I mean, like, I, I don't think um, it was far, far bigger than any sort of, uh, than any one person. Yeah, of course. And, and, and part of the sort of, um, uh, you know, part of the whole thing was like, you know, what well, he can say, well, the fuck he likes, but, you know, but I, I think the actual, the, the implications of it and what it sort of led to, you know, there's still to this day, you know, I've just finished um, reading, I was uh, sent an advanced copy of um, of um, Leah Saudi's book about the fat white family, which is co-written with um, uh, this author called Adele Stripe, who, who's uh, is a real, I mean, they both, they're both actually very, very good writers. I think they've given it, it's co-written so that they can, it can, you can have two voices going on. It works very effectively. But anyway, he would, just, he describes the fat white family as a punk band, you know, which, I mean, of course they are, you know, I mean, Kurt Cobain was, was, it hasn't really lessened in its, it's, it's, um, it's kind of appeal to the outsider. Yeah. To sort of people sort of feel that they're outside of stuff, and it it, it it speaks very strongly. It's it's. I have a certain issue with some American punk. It tends to be a lot of it, and a lot of it always has been. A friend of mine actually was making this point the other night. It's very sort of testosterone fueled. That very sort of can put you know quite often extremely aggressive. The gigs historically could be could get very violent, um, particularly if you're talking about say like the the LA scene. Um, back in the sort of like late late seventies, early eighties, yeah. there were people kicking the shit out of each other on those gigs, and I'm not talking about like you know like skinheads turning up and starting fights. It's like as happened here and indeed over there as well. But people were actually at the shows thinking this is the way to do it, and it was you know never ever about anything like that. It's one of the great things about the Pogues is that I've only a couple of times ever actually seen a serious kind of fight breakout at a, at a Pogues gig in all the fucking years that we've been together, all the shows that we did. And given the sort of like the intensity of like, just the way that people just kind of like, you know, sort of flying around, it's, it, it's, you know, it's quite easy just to sort of like accidentally sort of punch someone in the face, <laughs> basically, you know, without, you know, completely accidentally. You know, like that, you sort of like, you know, and every, you know, so like maybe once or twice that's kind of had unfortunate sort of 
uh, that's kind of like ended up going a bit too far. But but basically, the mood has always been so sort of upbeat and so positive that the whole notion of actually going there to sort of like start trouble or or or, or actually like as I was more to the point with regard to, the, to those American shows, like actually just like oh yeah, you know this is this is what we do, this is what we do. The band is you know we're going to kick we're going to kick the shit out of each other now because it's like you know and hurt each other yeah. because that's. That's cool, you know, and no one ever thought that. Personally, I have an issue with that. I think if you, I always believe that if you are going to go into a mosh pit, or if I'm personally like an American hardcore band, that you kind of what you're talking about, I, I quite enjoy that music. So whenever yeah, yeah, you go no, into when you go into that kind of mosh pit, it's a it's a it's a mutual understanding that if I fall down, you're going to help me ping me yeah, back up again. Yeah. If we bounce well, into each be. other, we're bouncing into each other. If I accidentally hit you, I didn't mean it. And I will, and usually if that ever happens, right. I grab the person, give them a hug, let them know that like, there was no animosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. No, that's, 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 you know, that's the way to do it. I think, you know, in these, this kind of like early LA scene, it was, it was just considered the right thing to do. You were expected to sort of get, to, to punch someone in the face and you were expected to get punched in the face. And, yeah, all right. You could say, well, that's kind of consensual, and the, you know, but it's it, the energy then becomes just something completely wrong. You know, it, 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 there's it just becomes far too toxic when you're just kind of like embracing violence. I can't run from hell tonight across the running sea. Running out of the crust and the blood, Christ can bring you help to save. The devil can proclaim it that friendly. Best I'm outside the past gone free. the story of about you and you, your, your bandmate Shane McGow, aka Shane O'Hooligan, I think he went for 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 a little while. Where about it was you? more but, back in the Nets days, really. Was it? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you both met at, at, at like now the legendary Ramon show that was at uh, the Roundhouse in the uh, Roundhouse, in London. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've spoken about that quite a lot in other interviews, so I don't really want to touch on that for too much. But I mean, what other shows kind of stand out for you? of that era that you went to um it's it's really actually quite difficult to get past that ramones show because it, it was it was so brilliant um it was so it was so funny you know they played they just put out the second album they played essentially two albums worth of materials because i think of material i think they left they left out one song off each album but then put in a couple two other songs that that weren't on the albums and they played them in like it, they seemed to be they seemed to be done in about 35 minutes you know and they were like faster and tighter and absolutely of course fucking louder than than than, than you would have thought possible you know it was it was uh, it was great i guess the, the the clash at the at the rainbow when all the seats got torn out with the with the jam and the buzzcocks was was a was a very good one and then there's just like lots of sort of like time just seemed you know people like I don't know, magazine at the Nashville or that. I mean, I, I saw the, the raincoats. I think I must have seen the raincoats about 15 times. And uh, 
I couldn't actually sort of pick out one show that was, they were all absolutely brilliant, you know. <laughs> so if you don't mind taking us back to like 1982, when the band formed, you and Shane had already been playing in punk bands, the Millwall Chainsaws, I think. Yeah, so some, from the formation and and the, and creating your debut album, um, Red Roses, for me, how long did it take you to find the sound that would become the Pokes? It was like right from the moment we started. It was quite, we knew what we would, what we, you know, there was, I don't think it's ever anything that we ever really sat down and talked about. The, the sort of the very first germ or seed of the idea was um, Shane picking up an acoustic guitar around at a friend's house and doing poor paddy works on the railway very fast. And it was just like, oh, light bulb, you know. Yeah, that that works, you know. And um, and then we did me and Shane and um, actually basically it was my band, the Millwall, Millwall Chainsaws, did a few rehearsals and then played a show at a club called Cabaret Futura in London doing sort of essentially revved up Irish rebel songs with a, an acoustic guitar and a sort of an electric bass and a sort of and a stripped down drum kit that was you know the southern pogues were always going to be a band that were essentially acoustic but played really fast and as we were doing sort of irish based music that we, we you know the the instrumentation was always going to be you know accordion and banjo the penny whistle came along because it was meant originally the idea was that both me and shane were going to sing um he was a much much better singer than i was i couldn't really sing at all in those days and he said oh you should just learn a penny whistle and beer tray um and so and so then you know we had this kind of um uh jem finer had never played a banjo before james who james fernley who was like musically the most um accomplished member of the band certainly at that point um he had never played accordion but he had learned piano obviously quite a considerably different instrument but the principles are essentially the same yeah it was always just going to be that just like you know just that instrumentation but the songs played fast I guess, in a sort of punk manner, if you want to put it like that. Can you remember being on stage and looking around and going, this is something, like we, we legitimately got something going on here? I remember a couple of times at rehearsals when Shane was like coming up with these songs. I mean, like, you know, Shane, Shane's previous band, The Nips, uh, were a really, really good band. They never really got anywhere but they did have quite a sort of following in london they you know they put out a few a few singles that were all really good one of which um song called gabrielle was um at the time paul weller was like saying oh this is my you know this is my favorite single this this record is brilliant you know you know shane could write songs that was that was apparent you know and good songs but when the stuff he started with he started coming out with 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 for the popes was just like this is like this is something really quite extraordinary. And then in terms of, um, you know, sort of attracting a following, and there was, uh, we used to, we played a couple of times at the Hope and Anchor on Upper Street, and we played there once and it had gone okay. We played there a second time. There was about maybe sort of 25, 30 people turned up. And uh, the guy that ran the place, the guy John, um, Shane and I sort of, sort of hung about afterwards, afterwards and, you know, he bought us a couple of drinks and he was saying, you know, lads, I just, I don't know, I don't, I don't actually think you're, this kind of stuff is, is, is right for, for the Hope and Anchor. And we were like, oh no, John, come on, come on, let, let, let us do one more, let us do one more. And he said, all right, okay, yeah, yeah. And he sort of like, we got, we played there again, guessing it was about a month later. And in that month, just something had happened and the place was just, the place was jammed. And, um, and there was another time sort of after that, we, uh, we went on tour with Elvis Costello. Um, it's the only tour we ever did as a, as a support. And, um, you know, we went, we, we went down pretty well. I mean, like, you know, his audience was maybe a little bit 
no, no, we went down pretty well. Um, but you know, it, it was um, it was you, you're the support band, so essentially, people who at the show they want to see Elvis Costello. They really weren't really that interested in seeing us, and we weren't. You know, it wasn't like there was this huge buzz about us. You know, at that particular sort of time, anyway. Um, but after that tour, I think it must have been, can't remember what time of year it was. I was going to say it was, it was coming up for a St. Patrick's Day, but it might have been more like around Christmas, one or the other. I've got a feeling it was St. Patrick's Day, which would have been St. Patrick's Day 80. No, it must have been Christmas 85. No, wait a minute. Sorry, just bear with me. Yeah, it's sort of 84, 85, I think, sort of. And, and we were playing the, uh, the Clarendon Hall, which is a, a, a sort of ballroom down in Hampstead. Sorry, Hampstead, Hammersmith. We, we played a couple of times before, sort of in the, they had a, a smaller room downstairs and we played there. And this time we were going to be playing the sort of main one. We'd been up the road um, doing some photos and we walked back down and I just saw this sort of crowd of people and I realised as I got as I got down, they were outside the Clarendon and they were sort of snaking around, and the sort of so the the, the tail was meeting the head, you know. You know, obviously they were queuing up for us, and it was just like, oh, okay, this is this is looks like it's getting interesting now. As as a band, essentially a bunch of English lads in England in the eighties, whereabouts the the viewpoint towards the Irish wasn't the kindest. Uh, to say well, we were kind of English, but well, Shane obviously isn't English. Yeah. I mean, Shane born here, sure, but um, but his his whole family is Irish, and um, except for the English relatives in Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what, what I'm essentially getting at is like it was a rough time to to, to be be playing Irish music in London when the troubles were happening. And well, you, you'd have you'd have thought, but I think um, prior to the. Uh, the, the Cabaret Futura show with the sort of revved up rebel, actual rebel songs. I mean, legend has it that there's, uh, there was a bunch of squaddies turned up and were, were pelting us with chips. Now, I've seen that, you know, repeated, you know, hundreds of times, countless times. And I've no recollection of that happening at all. Possibly I wasn't best placed to sort of have too much of a recollection of anything of that night. But I would say especially, you know, as, as you, you're correctly sort of stating the situation, that if a bunch of soldiers had gone to, uh, had gone to a, this particular club in, in London would have been a weird thing in itself, actually, at the time. But leaving that aside, so they decided, yeah, we will go into this kind of new romantic hangout, you know, and have been confronted by us playing fucking what they would have said, you know, IRA songs, they wouldn't have been throwing chips at us. <laughs> you know, they would have been, I think, I think they would have made their displeasure felt in a slightly more, uh, in a somewhat more extreme and, um, yeah, unpleasant manner. Chips, you know, come on. It's funny because one of the things that I've quite a lot of Irish friends of, uh, of mine who were living in London at that time and sort of like quite often had the experience of having to be very careful about speaking with too much of an Irish accent, if you know what I mean, mm. in the in in the wrong situation, just like having to sort of watch their backs because of because of what was what what was going down. You know, a lot of them have said, well, I say a lot of them, but quite a few of them have said, you know, one of the things that changed all that was when you guys came along. It suddenly the the, the perception, the attitudes towards the Irish seemed to shift. Not being Irish, I can't I can't sort of attest to that, but I've got other people. There's other people who who certainly would. On the 4th of July, 1806, we set sail from the sweet cove of Cork. We were sailing 
flying away with a cargo of bricks for the Grand City Hall in New York. Twas a wonderful craft she was rigged for the lap. I know how the wild winds blow her. She stood several blasts. She had 27 masts, and they called her the Irish Rover. We are one million bikes of the best line of rags. We are two million barrels of snow. We are three. Sides of our blind horses' hides, we have four million barrels of bones. We have five million hogs, six million ducks, seven million barrels of porter. We have eight million piles of our nanny ghost tiles, and a whole of the Irish Rover. The late great John Peel pushed many bands, and and your band is is one of them, from from what I understand. Him putting out Dark Streets of London on Radio One, which is obviously leading to a bigger audience. Did you have any idea of kind of like the business side of the industry as you're growing up as a band? Because I'm guessing once you start getting played on Radio One, that's whereabouts kind of the leeches of the music industry start coming out. Yeah, and I mean, like you know the. Um... It's actually Peter Powell was the first was was the first person to start playing uh, Dark Streets of London. We had a bit of an issue there because of the name of the band, mm. um, as it was Pogue Mahone in those days. Yeah. And um, then somebody from BBC, the Gaelic department or Gallic department, I should say, at, Ray, at BBC Scotland said, "Oh, you know that means kiss my ass." And then the BBC sort of got in a panic about sort of offending all the fucking millions of, of Gaelic speakers that there are in this country, um, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that the Irish had absolutely no problem with it whatsoever when, you know, RTE was playing us and calling us Pope Mahone, you know, until we changed. So we changed our name because they wouldn't play the record on, on, um, on daytime radio because they couldn't say the band's name. So it was actually uh, Peter Powell. Um, but as the side of it, the leeches and everything, I mean, like, you, you, you know, that you know, if you sort of, if you kind of know anything about, about sort of like the music business, about, about uh, just about sort of music, about what the things that happen to people. Yeah, you know that those people are there, but it's not like something that's, it's not really something that you sort of like, are particularly sort of worried about, I don't think, you know, but, I mean, like. As a band, were you quite savvy we to were, it though? I don't know if we necessarily how savvy we were. We were signed, you know, initially to Stiff Records, which was the natural home for us, and you know, a unique sort of indie label that was run by an Irish guy, Dave Robinson, who kind of like totally got what the band was about and why the band, um, why the band were important, why Shane was an important songwriter, but also at the same time didn't maybe as well it was always the case with with stiff they didn't quite have the they're like a, they were like a really really good like a football team with a with a brilliant with a brilliant coaching setup but they're in this they're sort of like league two or something like that you know and they don't have the wherewithal to sort of like you know take you and then sort of like you know you're not gonna you're never gonna make it to the to the champions league at crew alexandra you know but you might you know they might make you into a brilliant player or something like that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, the, the analogy is, is, is full of holes right now. So um, the, the American audience but, will be like, who are Crew Alexander? Yeah, they will be, won't they? Well, you know, they should Google it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, so we ended up signing to, um, oh God, whoever it was we ended up with, uh, Warners. Yeah, major labels are the sort of, uh, are, are obviously, the, that's the place where people sort of seem to famously come unstuck. We ended up in time in like, like around 1996 getting dropped by Warners, but, you know, whilst just sort of making money for them, um, 
it, and it was also a very different thing back in those days as well. We never really had any particular issues, I have to say. It seemed to be a period where about, it was like two years where about she went from kind of getting getting a little bit of radio play to all of a sudden people recognizing the music and and you getting write-ups in NME and Music Maker. As, as people, like, how did you deal with like that happening so quickly? Like, was it something that you were like prepared for? Like, yes, we always knew this was going to happen. Or was it like, there's so much being offered to us right now, be it drinks, drugs, whatever. Looking back, like, I, I wish it didn't happen so quick. No, 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 no. It's, um, for a start with the sort of drinks and drugs things and then being offered to you, I mean, like, it's only, you know, like your own appetites. And if you're at those appetites are already there, it's like not really something. Being in the pose wasn't quite like maybe being in, um, I don't know, like Led Zeppelin or something like that. We enjoyed this kind of like, this really sort of, actually really kind of smooth trajectory. What really eventually sort of caused real problems for the band was just like too much touring. Um, and that and that's what did it. But it wasn't... Um, and then, you know, you can start saying, oh, well, yeah, and, you know, people are offering sort of like, you know, there's too much drink around, there's too many drugs around, and they can bring their own problems with them. But um, I can't really speak for the others so much. Here. There's one of the things, one thing I will say from my own point of view is I felt very early on that we were a really really good band like we were like we were one of the best i thought there was once i remember on that very first tour that costello tour i was sitting next to cotto red and in the in in the, in the back of the bus and we um i just turned around to her and i said we're the best band in the world aren't we and uh and she said actually you know i think that we are and i'm not saying necessarily that we were well actually i mean i, I am I will. Um, <laughs> if you can't sort of say that about your own band, then that's, uh, you know, that you everybody ought to be able to have that sort of moment when you actually genuinely believe, not necessarily, I'm not talking about being on stage, but just like sort of thinking about what's the whole sort of thing and putting it all together and then and coming up with that, coming you know, coming to that conclusion. But you must be coming I mean, to that often on the stage, it was, it, that, that was very much the impression that you got because I have to say this as well. Um, you know, I've obviously, I've, I've, I've seen, I don't know how many, how many fucking bands in my life and I have never, ever, ever seen an audience like a Pogues audience. The only thing that it bears any comparison to is the most delirious and ecstatic moments if you're in a, if you're in a really densely packed football stadium and, the, and your team, the home, the home team is just fucking like obliterating the opposition. Our sound guy once said, um, we were playing in Dublin once. I think this might even have been on one of the reunions, actually. So this wasn't even in the old days. The reunions were pretty intense. But he said it was like every time, every song was just like watching Ireland in the World Cup final against England and like, and every time you started a song, it was like Ireland had scored. And you know the way that sort of like that roar will last for long, long for a long, long time. That sort of so that roar from that one, from that goal, that first goal or second goal, whenever it was, con- would continue until they got another one. You know, which was that song ending and the next one starting. You know, you know, I, I haven't seen another another band get a reaction like like we did. Jimmy Blyde, I'm on again, the pub where I was born. He played it from the night time to the pace of early morn. He served the souls of psychos and the men who had the horn. And they all looked very happy in the morning. But Jimmy didn't like his place in this world of ours. Pretty hard for man brought Starman's next and he had too many pairs. So I sad to see the grieving of the people that I'm leaving. And he took the road, but God knows in 
Special Four from Grace of God, an album that would would kind of set you as as a legit, like you kind of said, like one of the best bands in the world. But it kind of set you there on the bar uh, commercially, I suppose. Moving forward, I mean, when you were recording that album, because that album, like obviously Fairy Tale of New York, The Irish Rover, Streets of Sorrow, a, a personal favorite of mine, The Turkish Song of the Damned. I mean, while recording that album, did you realize like you you were on to such a winner? with that or is it something that you can't comprehend you're just recording them you think oh these are good songs well i mean it, it's again you know sort of the the, the its predecessor rob sort of and the lash had, had actually done pretty well and um it was more the sort of circumstances around the recording i think of of, of fairy tale of fairy tale of fall from grace Whereas uh, Red Roses for me and Rum Sodomy and the Lash had been done at um, had been done at Elephant Studios in Wapping, whereas the um, um, Fall from Grace was done at Rack in St John's Wood, which was much more of like a sort of like oof sort of big sort of like recording studio. Not that it was in any it was necessarily actually really any better as, as a recording studio than, than than Elephant was. It was just bigger and more expensive. Um, and we had, you know, Steve Lillywhite producing us who had done like, you know, um, U2 and, 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 uh, and all those other people. So that it had all those kind of trappings. I've, I think because of the sort of stage we were at, we knew that it was, we, we knew that it was going to do well, you, you know, um, and, and the sort of like the scale of its success wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't sort of off the charts in any case, you know, mm. it's, it, it really, really well. And and continued to do really well for for quite a long time. But in in fairness, so did Rob Sodomy and the Lash. Peace and Love, the album after it was actually the biggest selling, and it's like you know, I think most people would agree is a markedly inferior record. Maybe markedly is a bit harsh. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about that Christmas song then, the Fairy Tale of New York. I mean, a song about a couple having a Barney, which became probably the most loved Christmas song. When when you first heard it, I mean, what were your thoughts? Were you like, this isn't going to catch on? No, I, I always um, I, I, I always um, thought that it was going to do well. I always thought it was a really good song. I didn't sort of... Uh, I don't think you can actually sort of anticipate that something is going to become, like in many people's eyes, the best Christmas song of all time. I don't even know if it is, you know, but certainly a lot of people do think it is so that's that's great it, it, it was you know it, it was a clearly good song so i mean like of course you know and then we yeah, yeah of course this is going to be a single and 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 you, and you hope for the best again you know the sort of the the where we were at that at that at that stage it sort of didn't seem unreasonable to sort of hope that it might do very well indeed and you know if you've got a single out at christmas you know you're always going to like you know and you're in a, in the position where this is a realistic possibility you're always like, oh, Will will this be the Christmas number one? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't the Christmas. No, no. you can't hate the Pet Shop Boys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're a cracking band. I mean, exactly. Yeah, that that song has just it's become so iconic, and and not only for yourselves, the band, but I think also for for a nation. A lot of Christmas songs, I think, are very Americanized. Where this one, I think, is is truly. 
embedded in in something that's real and i and i think that's why people like it so much and i think that's why as a country have embraced the pogues in in such a way kind of more of a statement than a question well i really need to go so i'm I'm cutting a lot of questions i wanted to ask you about strummer and your acting and stuff like that but hopefully we can pick this up another time so really kind of closing there i mean sitting back now and, and looking back at your time with the pogues and and what the pogues became kind of spoke about how you felt you feel a bit like a big head but i mean do you do you look back and go like i said like a bigot a bigot of no, <laughs> <laughs> um do, can can you kind of take it all in and go fuck like we are legitimately part of music history in a yes. way yeah yeah, yeah yeah i can there was a time when i um there was a time after the band split up and i sort of i, I sort of felt Oh, you know, like like reading sort of music papers or whatever, you know, like yeah, you know, we seem to be we seem to be sort of like have been written out and stuff, you know. And then um, I was there was some um, I think it was some I can't remember who. Sorry, it doesn't really matter who it was. Somebody's birthday party I was at in a pub, and um, this guy from someone not that anyone's opinion is actually less is worth any more than anyone else's, um, but it was a guy sort of from the industry or whatever. Mm. It's like you know. Some Australian guy. I don't know what that's going to do with it, but it, or maybe it's about the, the sort of the reach or something. Um, and he's like, "Oh, you're in the Pogues? Fuck me! That's like you're in the. You might as well have just told me you're in the Rolling Stones, you know." And so I thought, "Well, yeah, okay, I, that's nice. Thank you, you know." Yeah, I, 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 I don't have any sort of. Um, I don't have any worries about where we stand. It's good it's to talk a little bit. No, 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 it's, it's okay. We'll wrap up because I, I think, if I'm honest, I think we're both knackered. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I've been jabbering. <laughs> All good, man. Uh, thank you for doing this. Have a great Christmas. And um, yeah. and, and I hope we will get to talk about the Strummer days and, and stuff. Oh, like absolutely. That Let's, uh, we, can, we can do this again. And like, Okay. <laughs> Stay well. Have a good Christmas. Thank you very much. Time but my love By the gasworks wall Dream the dream By the old canal my girl by the factory wall dirty old town dirty old town clouds are drifting across thank you so much to spider for giving up his time as you just heard there we will follow up this episode talk more about the reunion Shane being sacked and then Joe Strummer coming in and taking over for a little while plus much much more next time that's me and Spider get an opportunity to speak uh, we'll make that happen thank you to Glue Ear for sponsoring this episode of the podcast I think it's too late for them to get to Christmas number one but you can still add them to your Christmas playlist if you're listening to this episode before the big day thank you to all the bands and uh, brands and uh, whatever trinkets uh, that people have come onto this podcast to kind of push to you guys and sell to you guys to sponsor an episode in this podcast is completely free it's all about supporting the scene that we love so continue to support the people who give up their time to do a little record and uh, send over their wares so keep supporting the scene thank you to all my guests who have been on this podcast this year people's time is not free so i appreciate everyone who sits down and picks up a mic with me lastly thank you to you for sticking with me it's been a tough year. I took a very long time off uh, for mental health reasons. And uh, the fact that you came back to to listen to this podcast and didn't forget about me means so much. So I, I generally, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. That's it. 
that's it for 2021. If you're lucky enough to be going to a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. I will see you in 2022. Happy Christmas. I love you. Bye-bye. Shining still Tempered in the fire I'll chop you down Like an old Dutch ring Dirty old town Dirty old town I met my love by the gasworks wall Dreamed a dream By the old canal I kissed my girl By the factory wall Dirty old town Dirty old town Dirty old town